grace that you have rained down and lavished on us is so amazing. May our hearts cry out each and every day, praising you for what you have done. As we awake each day and realize that that day is given by you, we have breath because of you. We have life. Good to be back with you guys. I know you all missed Michelle last week, and I was gone too, but uh, it's great to, great to be back. I have to say, we didn't miss you a whole lot because, man, we were really tired and looking forward to uh, some time away, but many of you ask, how was our vacation? Not a vacation. Our kids went on a vacation. We were on duty up in Washington, D.C., taking care of our three granddaughters while our daughter and son-in-law went on a vacation to celebrate their anniversary. And I tell you, I, it's been a while since uh, we've been in that kind of capacity, never with all three of them at the same time. And uh, you know, you get to the end of the day and you're just hoping they're still alive. Our daughter kept on reminding us about these choking hazards and I was fearful that we were gonna somehow, you know, they're gonna come back with you know, a few less kids. But um, it was exhausting, my goodness. I didn't, I'd forgotten that kids don't come with a dimmer switch. And so, I mean, from early in the morning all the way to the end, it was nonstop. And uh, they, they would go to bed, uh, and we would go to bed with them at the same time. The sun was still up, and then they'd get up there about 5.30, our time here. And uh, so it was some tough stuff. And in the middle of that, I got vertigo. And uh, I've talked about vertigo before, and, and some of you still think that, you know, I, people all the time come, I get that sometimes too. I mean, I like, man, I'm dizzy for like about 30 seconds. I can't. This is incapacitated for 24 to 36 hours. I'm on the bed, cannot get up. And this is right in the middle of it. I'm feeling horrible lying in the bed while Michelle is taking care of the three kids. And uh, I kept trying to get up. I couldn't get up. I kept trying to get up. I mean, seriously, I was wanting to get up to help her, and I couldn't. And uh, so we, we survived that. We came back, and we need a vacation now. But... Good to be back with you guys. Jeff did a great job, enjoyed listening to the podcast. I'm excited about just all of the innovations that we have had uh, in the midst of the pandemic, the ways that you can communicate and uh, listen to what's going on in the church. And so I listened to the podcast yesterday. He did a great job of finishing off John chapter 11. And then uh, today we come to John 12. But, but before we do that, I want to talk to the dads and say happy Father's Day to you guys. This is a special day. Yesterday was, was kind of unique. Michelle uh, took me out. She wanted to buy a Father's Day gift for me. And so we were walking out of the store, and I had this panic feeling in my stomach that I don't have a Father's Day gift. 
then it dawned on me, I don't have a dad anymore. And that was a weird feeling. You know, I don't know how many times Father's Day, you kind of, you know, my dad was always hard to shop for. I don't know if your dad's that way, but he was always really hard to get a gift for on Father's Day. And uh, I was walking out and realizing, don't have a father to give a Father's Day gift today. So I'm wearing my dad's boots. Uh, these were boots that he had in honor of him. I'm wearing those today. And I wanted to just say happy Father's Day to all of you guys. I know Father's Day falls in a lot of different emotions for us. Some had a great dad. Some have a great dad. Some it wasn't the best of relationships. But God has given us fathers for a very important reason. Comedian Mike Dugan was talking about Father's Day gifts. And he said, I have mixed emotions when I receive my Father's Day gifts. I'm glad my children remember me, but I'm disappointed that they actually think I dress that way. Uh, all of us as dads have received something like, really, you, you think I would wear that? You think that I would look good wearing that? Maybe the best Father's Day gift of all uh, was produced by Nissan, the automaker. They have designed a golf ball that is always a one putt. You putt the ball and it will not stop and it goes into the hole. It's built out of the technology for self-driving cars. And so whether you're six feet away or 60 feet away, when you tap the ball, it will not stop until it goes in the hole. There's only a couple small problems. You have to go to Japan to be able to use that ball. And it takes a whole carload of equipment to set up around the green with all the sensors to guide the little motorized ball into the hole. But we do have some nice gifts for you guys, though we don't have uh, clothes to wear or uh, innovative little golf ball to putt. We do have a place for you to go and have fun with golf clubs if you enjoy that kind of thing. Uh, we're working with Top Golf this week, and you can pick up as a dad a $10 off gift card out in the foyer when you leave, and that will get you $10 off to go and rent for a, an hour or two or however long you want to go over there. Whatever you want to do, $10 off, just an expression of our appreciation to you as dads. And uh, if you don't want to carry your golf clubs, I figured out something I'm, I'm trying to, I said in the early service, I'm trying to get my golf swing back. It never existed. I'm just trying to get a golf swing. And, uh, you know, I've been to golf, uh, top golf a couple of different times, and you go over there and you have to carry your clubs, and that's a little bit cumbersome because you really don't need all of your clubs in a big bag. And so I decided to go over to Goodwill. You might want to do this. I went over to Goodwill and bought some clubs over there. I bought Three irons, because that's all you really need. I got a five, a seven, and a nine iron, and a driver. And uh, they were each $3 a piece. I'd always wanted some ping golf clubs. And so I got some ping golf clubs at Goodwill for $3 a piece. So you may want to do that. Take those over there. Take your family over there and have a, have a good time. But that's an opportunity for you to experience this week. And uh, for those of you that don't like golf, you can go over to Chick-fil-A in the mall. And there's a very strategic reason for that. Number one is I know the owner of the Chick-fil-A inside the mall. And he is giving us, all the dads that want to go there, you just take one of the Westgate cards out in the uh, atrium, and you will get a free uh, peach shake. Those are really, really good. I was so disappointed to discover that during the pandemic, they refined their menu. So they no longer have a large peach milkshake. They're just one size for the milkshakes. But you can get that one size when you go over there. And the reason that we've designed where you go into the mall is that once you finish drinking your milkshake, then you can walk inside the mall for several hours to burn off the calories in that one milkshake. And then the last one is an opportunity for all of you as dads to, at the, in the atrium afterwards, is to fill out an index card with your name and your phone number and drop it in the bucket in there. 
Kate Bernson has donated four Astros tickets. And they're right behind third base, so you're looking into the Astros dugout. Great seats, has a parking pass included. It'll be a game to be determined, but we'll make the drawing tomorrow. And so if you want to drop that in after the service, it's out there. About a decade ago, Matt Tullis, who is a very creative writer, communicator, put together a letter for his son that I thought was so apropos that I wanted to read it to you. It talks about manhood, and as we come to, together on Father's Day, it is so important to be reminded of what, father, what manhood is really about. And so here are some excerpts from the letter that he wrote uh, to his son. He writes, I've learned the hard way that manhood is not an age but a choice. A boy is selfish, a man is sacrificial. A boy speaks easy lies, a man speaks hard truths. A boy has a foul mouth relying on a few vulgar words to communicate a myriad of messages. A man uses a robust vocabulary to solve a myriad of conflicts. A boy refuses to listen with an open mind. A man listens much and talks little. A boy is controlled by anger. A man channels his anger to create godly change. The pleasure of a boy is unbridled and thoughtless. A man lives for a cause that ultimately brings him more pleasure than anything a boy could ever imagine. Life is difficult, and once you accept that, you'll find that it's not too difficult to handle. You are loved, accepted, and celebrated. Today, I regard you as a man. Now it's your turn to change the world. I love you, Dad. What great words. For you as men, fathers, dads, life can be pretty challenging. Sometimes you can feel as if you're not very successful much of the time. It's an occupational hazard that is built into the job description of being a dad. So I want to take a moment to pray over you guys. So those of you that are fathers, if you would stand for just a moment, and we would like to pray over you, but all of you as fathers, would you take a moment to, to just stand on this Father's Day? And as you're standing, let me voice a prayer over you. God, thank you for the incredible sight before our eyes. These men, godly men, fathers, dads, Men that didn't stumble in to this responsibility. But men that you have ordained to lead their families and their homes. Lord, it is true that so much of the time we feel as if we're failing, not succeeding, not accomplishing what you've called us to do and be. So today, Lord, I pray that each of these men would be energized, strengthened, and encouraged empowered to be the men that you have created them to be. God, may they feel your pleasure on their lives. I pray that they would sense that you are guiding them with wisdom and discernment to make the hard decisions that so oftentimes come with this job. Lord, as they leave this place today, may they carry a resolve to not focus on the failures, but focus on the calling that you've given them. Lord, may they know unbridled success 
as men of God, fathers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, since it's Father's Day, you would anticipate this would be a Father's Day message, and indeed, many components of it relate to that, but it relates to all of us as we come to John chapter 12. I'm very thankful for Jeff's responsibility of filling in for Lane when Lane was sloughing off last week and didn't, didn't uh, carry his responsibility to preach. No, just kidding. Lane and, and Heather were very sick last week, and he hated to pass that off to Jeff, but Jeff did a remarkable job of, of filling in. And as we come to this passage of Scripture in John chapter 12, it relates to, to all of us, the, the scent of worship. A number of years ago, we were preparing for a Christmas Eve service, and I was thinking about the experience of worship. And worship is, is not just two-dimensional. It's an experience in which you want to have more than just the visual. You want to have more than just the audio. I was thinking, what could we do that would accentuate this Christmas experience on Christmas Eve? I thought, I got a great idea. Let's put some of those burners that create this, this smell, this beautiful aroma inside the sanctuary. And so I got several of those and put them in here and had that Christmas cinnamon all ready. And this is a big room. You couldn't even smell it. And I was so disappointed. We didn't have a scent for Christmas Eve service. Well, you probably don't expect to smell something when you come in for worship. In fact, if you smelled something, you would probably think we're not in the right place. We don't expect to have a scent in our worship, a smell. But as we're going to see in John chapter 12, worship has a scent. If you join me in John chapter 12, I want to read the first 11 verses as we come now to the last week of Jesus' life. John 1 through 11 is all about the first three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And John chapter 1 even takes us all the way back to eternity past. But in those first 11 chapters, we see Jesus walking the face of the earth and doing his ministry for three years in John 1 through 11. As we turn to 12, from here on out, we are focused on the very end of Jesus' life. So it says in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, six days before the Passover. Important for us to know where we are. Jesus had withdrawn from Bethany after he had raised Lazarus back to life. And now he is coming back to Bethany just two miles away from Jerusalem where he will be hung on a cross just a week later. It says he came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Remember that John is writing six decades after these experiences. So he's drawing to people's attention what had happened. You find it interesting that in the other three Gospels, you don't have reference to Lazarus being raised to life. Several of the commentators said possibly the reason for that was is that those Gospels were written much earlier, and putting their names and the experience in may have threatened their life and livelihood. Now as John is writing, some 60 years removed from it, they are most likely gone. It says Jesus had raised him from the dead, something that no one had ever done before. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Well, obviously, he has come back to Bethany. Everybody remembers the last time he was here. A dead guy came back 
to life, and they wanted to honor Jesus. They did not realize that Jesus would be dead a week from now. They just recognized who he was, and they wanted to lift him up. It says that Martha was serving while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Why? Because Lazarus is a rock star. As Jeff alluded to last week, everybody came. That was a tourist stop to come and see me because no one had ever seen a dead guy come back to life. And so here is Lazarus sitting with all the special guests. There are at least 17 people for this dinner. And you remember back in the, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke talks about Mary and Martha and how busy and bothered she was when she was serving before. But here she is serving gladly because she is so excited that Jesus is there. He says that while they were reclining at the table, Mary took about a pint of pure nard. And this is perfume that was typically used to not embalm, but to put on a dead body before burial. They would take the body out. Remember, we talked about this before with Lazarus. It would be buried on the day that they died. And they would take this perfume that was imported from India. That's why it was so expensive. It came a long way. This is pure. There is nothing diluted in this. And they would pour that over the body, and they would rub it into the skin, and it would kind of dilute the smell of a body as it begins to decompose. It's about a pint, which is if you're thinking about a 12-ounce a can of Coke or something like that, about the same size. Very expensive, it says. And she poured it on Jesus' feet. How, why would she do that? How would they do that? Remember that if you're dining at a table in that particular culture, it would be like a U-shaped table. People would have their head. They would lay down, didn't have chairs. They would lay down on the floor on pillows with their head to the table, and they would eat that way, and their feet would be away. Now, there's a good reason for that, is people's feet didn't smell too nice. I mean, daily baths were not a part of the equation. I mean, if you got a bath every couple of months, maybe you dipped in the river, that was about it, no soap. It was not a good experience, so you wanted the feet as far away from the food as possible. And it says that Mary pours this expensive perfume, not just a little, she broke the vial, and poured it on his feet, and then began to wipe his feet with her hair. Don't forget that. And the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. It did smell, and it smelled wonderful. So there we have Mary giving us the scent of worship. As we look at this passage, we think, well, obviously that is what you're talking about, the scent of of worship. That's the worship experience that you find here. See if you see another worship experience as we continue on. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why hasn't this perfume been sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, year's wages back then, doing the math on this, important to remember this math, probably about $51 in their time and their era. And we say $51, that's not much, but that's how much people would make in an entire year. If you're trying to do it in contemporary parlance, you just think, what is your current salary or what is the salary that, that you retired on? And just imagine taking all of a year's wages and buying one thing, and that'd be a perfume bottle that you spill onto the feet of Jesus. And so here is Judas saying, the treasurer of the disciples, that's a year's worth of wages. And then John gives us commentary. 
Don't forget this. Six decades later, this is still what he remembers about Judas. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. There's Judas complaining of this extravagant waste. And how does Jesus respond? He says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should, that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus rebukes Judas, not just for his statement. He is really giving him a subtle message there. He is speaking from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. That passage of Scripture, it tells us, you will always have the poor among you. So, be open-handed and generous to minister to them. And here is Judas saying, we could, have, we could have taken care of the poor with that. And Jesus is saying to Judas, I know your intent. Your intent was to put it in the bag and spend it on yourself. Your intent wasn't to be open-handed with the poor. A very subtle rebuke. And sometimes people have taken that verse out of context, kind of to mean that, we really don't need to be bothered by the poor. We don't need to take care of the poor. We're always going to have poor. It's, it's, it's a never-ending fight. It'll never be resolved. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Take care of the poor. Be open-handed and generous. You see any worship taking place there? Let's go on. Let's see if we see another aspect of worship. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, as Jeff alluded to last week. Here's the tourist stop, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Remember how last week Jeff told us about Caiaphas saying that it was for the benefit of the nation that one man would die? And now they're changing the equation. That's not enough. We need to kill two guys now, Jesus and Lazarus. How sad that they couldn't see who Jesus was, the power to raise a man back to life. But instead, they wanted to kill him. Did you see the elements of worship in there? The scent of worship? chosen the word scent because it could refer to a good scent or a bad scent. A scent can smell good or it can smell bad. And as we look at this passage of Scripture that we find that we all worship someone or something. All of us. What does worship mean? It means to give worth-ship to something. Something that we value, that we cherish, that we treasure. A mentor of mine told me a number of years ago, and I, was, I wasn't even a pastor yet. He was talking about honorariums for doing weddings. And he said, whenever the groom would ask me, what do I owe you, preacher? He would say, oh, just pay me whatever she's worth. 
Of course, that's pretty tough when the guy pulls out a 10 spot in front of his wife, and he said, always, always say that in front of the bride. What's God worth? See the story there? What's God worth? To Mary? Everything. What did that little vial represent? Not just a year's worth of salary, but it represented her dowry. That would be the price that would be given to the family of the man who wanted to marry her. So she was saying, I'm holding nothing back. See, we all worship something or someone. Did you see who Judas worshipped? Oh, we think certainly not. Judas is critical of the experience, and he has nothing but negative things to say exactly. He's worshiping someone, himself. God created us, ordained for all of us to be worshipers. That's why worship took place in the Garden of Eden before sin came into the world. That's why the Ten Commandments open up with a statement about the need to worship God. The entire law built around the worship of God. The worshiping of Christ in the New Testament, and then you get to the end of the New Testament that points to the end times in which we will worship God throughout all of eternity. It is saying, God, you are worth everything in my life. You are of greatest value. But for Judas, it was himself. You know, we can worship ourselves and still go to church. We can worship ourselves in church, in which we think about our own preferences, our own desires, our own conveniences, what we want. We can worship ourselves, make sure that we're comfortable and things go the way that, that we want. Mark Merrill has wisely said, we are all either serving or self-serving. It's very easy to be self-serving. That's not a critical statement about us. It's just a good thought for us to ponder. Because as we see in the life of Judas, he, he worshiped himself. But he's not the only one worshiping here. What do you see at the end when it says that the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus? What did they worship? You know, crazy enough, it almost sounds like they worshiped their worship. They worshiped what they wanted. They wanted to be in control. They wanted things to go their way. Isn't it crazy that if you're looking for the Messiah and this guy shows up and he raises people from the dead and in your mind you're thinking that the Messiah is a military leader, is this not the guy you go to? I mean, you go out to battle, it's kind of like freeze tag. Guy gets killed, okay, you're alive. Guy gets killed, you're alive. Man, how could you lose with an army like that? But instead, they want to eliminate him and Lazarus, who is proof positive that he really is the Son of God. Why? Because they were inter he was interrupting their life. What is it that, that we worship? Sometimes it's our own comfort and convenience, yes. 
And that could be spilled out into almost any area of life, sometimes just our money. But interesting enough that with all the money in the world, here's Lazarus. I mean, here's, here's Judas wanting a year's worth of wages stuffed in his pocket. And even with all of that, he couldn't have done what Jesus did in bringing Lazarus back to life. Now, I'm wishing the best for Jeff Bezos next month when he flies up into space. Richest man on the planet. What if things don't go well and he and his brother don't survive? He has more money than you and I can even count in a lifetime. Will that money bring him back to life? No. But Judas says, I'd rather have the money than you. And sometimes in our lives, we, we think it's just temporary. I want to take some extra time to collect this money. Nothing, long, no, nothing wrong with building up wealth. John Wesley said, make as much as you can so that you can give away as much as you can. But if it becomes what we trust in and it becomes our idol, it becomes our God that we value more than other things, it's a problem. So anyway, we're reminded of this passage of Scripture that we all worship something. On the surface, it looks like only Mary is worshiping, but Judas is worshiping too, and so are the chief priests. We also see here that worship defines us. What we give our attention to defines us. I think back over 50 years ago when I was in junior high, and it's so long ago, yeah, that's what they called it, junior high back then. Things seemed so less chaotic in 1971. But that was a year that Herbert Simon postulated and termed a coin called attention economy. Psychologist, economist, he did all of his research so much so and did it so well that he won a Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Science in 1978. He postulated that attention is like any other economic component. It's limited. We know we have limited clean air, we have limited clean water, we have limited oil, fossil fuel, gas, whatever it might be. We have limited money, limited resources. And he was saying in our culture, in our world of overabundance of information, of way too many choices, what happens is we end up with a deficit in our attention. So we must allocate our attention appropriately, just like we would dollars in our pocket. We only have so much attention that we can spend. So we must be guarded with it, otherwise it'll all be depleted and we won't be able to focus our attention on anything. In some of our lives, it might be that our attention is fixated on so many other things that we now have an attention deficit. We've depleted our attention for the focus on God. Judas had. He was so fixated on money that he couldn't focus on the Savior right in front of him, but not Mary. It didn't matter what she spent or what she did. She wanted to worship God. Our worship defines us. Again, think back. Six decades later, John is writing, and he's saying, this is what I remember about Mary. God was worth everything to her. And here's what I remember about Judas. Jesus wasn't worth 25 bucks. You look at the math here, and I said that that, that Coke-sized bottle of perfume was $51 back then. 
Judas betrayed Jesus for about $25. 50% sale. Half off. Jesus wasn't even worth the amount of the vial of perfume. Half price. That's what John remembers. What does John remember about the chief uh, religious leaders? That all they could see was Jesus was interrupting their enterprise and they wanted him dead. Our worship will define us, whether it's of God or something else. And our worship impacts others. I'm so thankful for this story, and I hope you are as well. That we have this story, this piece of history to go back to 2,000 years later. And it can impact our lives today. It can help us to be true worshipers of God. In which we put everything across the table to say, I'm all in for you, God. Our worship impacts other people. Charles Swindoll said, each day of our lives we make deposits in the memory banks of our children, speaking about fathers, which is so true. Dads, I hope you remember that. Every day you are making deposits or withdrawals in the memory banks of your kids' lives. But the same could be said of our worship. Each day we are making deposits or withdrawals in our bank of worship to God. You know, the, the fascinating thing, one of the fascinating things that I had never thought about in all the times of looking at this passage is the, the residual smell, aroma of that fragrant perfume. And again, go back to, this, to the culture. They didn't shower off. They didn't take baths. It, it, it didn't smell very well. They, they didn't have the hygiene that we have. They didn't have the... the uh, the sewer systems that we have today, feet were nasty. And here's Mary pouring this perfume that is so strong that it's designed to go on bodies to cover up the smell of decomposition. And she pours that on Jesus' feet a week before he's crucified. Jesus won't take a bath between here and there. You get where I'm going? What do you think the soldiers smelled as they pulled that spike out to drive it through his feet? Fragrance still wafting off of his feet. The fragrance of her hair everywhere she went for weeks to come, people would smell fragrance of a worship. As we worship, that fragrance, that scent will carry over into other people. Men specifically, you model for your kids what true worship is. Been a pastor a long time. One of the patterns that I see consistently is when parents come and drop their kids off for church, that works until middle school. And then at middle school, the kids are smart enough to realize if this isn't, this isn't valuable enough for mom and dad to stay, it's not valuable enough to keep doing. The way that we worship impacts the lives of other people, creates a legacy. 
So as we come to the end, who or what is the focus of your worship and my worship? Do we worship our worship? I hope you got this, this letter from me uh, talking about decisions that we're going to be making about the post-pandemic uh, way that we worship here at Westgate, what that's going to look like. You know, the way that our church operates, and this is important for us to all think about as we move into these days, and I hope to talk about worship in, in a couple of weeks as we gather together for July 4. But as we reflect on who we are as a church, we, we are congregationally governed. That means that we as a church make decisions together, big decisions. We make them together. This is not a decision for the staff or the deacons to say, oh, yeah, we're going to do this. It's a decision that we will come together as a church and we will decide together. Uh, I don't want to make that decision. I want all of us to make that decision. So we're congregationally governed. We are committee-driven. We have a number of committees. They bring proposals, ideas, recommendations to the church to vote on. And then we are staff-directed. Because the staff is designed to help out and administer in the church, there's a lot of stuff that comes from the staff, but if it's going in the wrong direction, the church will say, wait a second, we're congregationally governed. Let's vote on this. We did that in the renovations of this building. Started off with staff saying, we got some real deficits here that need to be brought to attention. Went to a committee. Committee reviewed it and said, yes, we definitely do. Brought it to the church. And a couple of times the church said, no, now is not the time to do it. So it, it didn't go. But this time, we came together as a church and we said it's time. And unanimously, we agreed to do that. You know, as we think about worship, this passage is so pertinent to us. Do we worship our worship, the way that we worship, the style that we worship, the time of our worship. So that's why I've asked you in this, in this letter, and, and we'll say again, here's what I would love for you to do. First of all, listen to God, because we don't want to worship our worship at Westgate. You can say amen if you think you agree with that. I don't want us to worship our worship. We want to worship God. So we need to listen to God first and say, God, how do you want us to worship you? And then we need to listen to others. We're all in this together, and so we need to listen. What are, what are other people saying? How do they feel in the midst of this? What is, what is being impacted in their lives? And then finally, that's God speaking to us. <laughs> finally, is to listen to ourselves. When we're talking about this with other people, what's coming out of our mouth? What are we saying? And listen to yourself and, and let those words resonate and say, you know, because sometimes, uh, many, many times I should say, things coming out of my mouth and I say, did I really say that? And we need it. So we need to listen to God and we need to listen to one another and we need to listen to ourselves to make sure that our thoughts and our words are in line with what God is calling. So who or what is your focus of worship and does your worship leave an aroma or an odor. Mary left a beautiful aroma. It could be, it still be smelled a week later under all the abuse of the cross. In Judas, you can still smell the stench of his worship 2,000 years later. 
Is your worship, is my worship, leaving an aroma or an odor? The only way that we will ever find aroma in our lives is through Christ. God loves us and he's created us to have a relationship with him. That is the greatest need of anybody's life. But because of our sin, we are separated from God and we cannot have any relationship with God except through Christ. That's why we say, thankfully, Jesus came to make us right with God and make us right for all of eternity. We can be changed by humbly repenting of our sins and surrendering everything that we have to Jesus Christ, inviting him to be the Lord and Savior of our life. If anyone in this room or listening online has never made that commitment, that full surrender to Christ, I want to invite you to do that. And one of the things that I think is so powerful about this little prayer is not only will it allow someone to enter into a relationship with Christ, but it allows Christians to be reminded of the gospel that we take to other people and what God has called upon us, full surrender to him. So let's pray. And if you've never received Christ, I pray that you would join in this prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us, helps us to understand, gives us clarity about worship, how confusing that can be. Lord, I pray that you would still our focus upon you. Any attention deficit that we have, we would make it right. We would allocate the time that is needed to put our focus on you. Lord, if anyone in this room listening online has never committed their life to Jesus Christ, receive your forgiveness, I pray that they would voice a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. God, help us all to do that. May our eyes fall upon the actions of Mary in this piece of history and say, that's who I want to be. I'm all in for you. You are worth everything that I have, so I surrender afresh to you all that I am and all that I have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you want someone to pray with you in this next song, it'll be the conclusion of our worship, but it is worship. We'll be standing, we'll be singing, but if you want someone to pray with you, there'll be staff at the crosses and over at the prayer benches and out in the atrium. You may want to come and pray at the altar and just say, God, would you refresh my worship and my understanding of worship? may want to pray or kneel where you are but would you use this time not as a moment to get finished may this be the climax of our worship experience in which we just give it all to the lord if you've made a decision to follow christ know that you can text to 94000 text westgate to 94000 and we can be in touch with you you can also fill out a communication card that you see in the pew rack in front of you uh, looks like this you can drop it in one of the offering places on the way out, or you can call us anytime. So let's stand together. 
let's continue to worship. Students, be sure to meet down front for the meeting about camp.